welcome to KUMC Cultivate, a podcast highlighting community members engaged in supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion on and around the KU Medical Center campus. KUMC Cultivate is brought to you by the School of Health Professions Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. We strive to facilitate understanding and acceptance of persons with diverse abilities, cultures, and ethnicities through education and support. Welcome to today's conversation with Karina Seichow and Romy Kowo from the University of Kansas Student Equity and Inclusion Workgroup. Let's dive in. Karina and Romy, tell us about yourself and what the uh, Student Equity and Inclusion Workgroup means to you. Well, my name is Karina, as you mentioned. I moved here in June from Oakland, California to pursue a doctorate degree uh, in child language where Dr. Mabel Rice is my advisor. I was recruited, in fact, by the Student Equity and Inclusion Group or by one of the members. I am here uh, essentially because of them. I had a great experience in October. Uh, they, they threw me a party, took me around campus for a tour um, and around the Lawrence area as I have always lived in, in Oakland. My family is fifth generation there. And so it has really meant um, the advancement of my education. It has really meant the ability for me to fulfill a longtime dream, um, which is working toward earning a doctorate degree. So I, I think lastly, it has meant community. The equity and inclusion work group has been um, quite amazing in my transition to living in Lawrence. Hi, I'm Romy. Uh, I think that um, the pinnacle of the start of my graduate experience um, and like a smooth transition into the graduate experience was due to the student equity and inclusion work group. Um, in undergrad is when I met um, Samantha Galley um, and uh, Teresa um, Girolamo. And I think it was through their mentorship that I really learned um, that the experiences I was having in my undergrad, especially in my last semester of undergrad, um, were not the same as my white peers. Um, and that's kind of where it started for me, um, getting their, that mentorship and then um, having them um, kind of help me in my graduate school application, actually, um, the mentorship of like how to uh, properly make a CV and um, how to uh, go about asking um, some of my mentors for letters of recommendation and things like that, um, things that I was not taught um, within my program, which is now the inter-campus program for communication sciences and disorders, um, which stems out of the speech language hearing um, program. And I just feel like for me, the Student Equity and Inclusion Work Group uh, was really about mentorship and um, learning about my positionality, my leadership, um, how I can be a leader. Um, and it was really uh, one of the main reasons that I think I was motivated to even 
pursue, um, you know, higher education, um, having that support system, because I didn't have necessarily the support system I do now that, um, but prior to that undergraduate, uh, my last year of undergrad, um, I didn't really have that support system. So having that support system and then getting accepted into graduate school and now being in graduate school has really been, um, I think, much smoother due to the support um, of my colleagues and the student equity and inclusion work group. Could you share an experience when you realized your race, ethnicity, or abilities were not equitably recognized? I think growing up in the Bay Area where um, diversity was um, was kind of a, a big deal. It was, it was actually quite diverse despite its um, pretty significant history. And so <clears throat> the school that I went to um, was originally built um, for the students at the Naval Base in Alameda. Uh, and so of course that, that also brought a lot of diversity. And in fact, the school <laughs> was so diverse that they ended up putting the statistics in our yearbook. And so we kind of hovered around 20% um, um, people who identified as black or African-American, 20% white, 20% um, some kind of Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, 20% um, Asian, and then 20%, you know, like everything else. It was, it was actually pretty amazing. And so I had the opportunity, um, even I think from, from preschool, like my elementary school teacher, uh, or not teacher, but principal uh, was a black woman um, and the, the staff there was pretty diverse. So I, I was actually really lucky in all of my schooling. Um, my mom was able to, to suss out these places where she really felt like um, we belonged and that our um, educators and other students um, would benefit from us being there and we would benefit from being there in terms of being uh, whole and well-rounded individuals um, out in the society later in life. And so it actually wasn't until high school that I really understood my intersectionality specifically um, as a black female. And so um, I was a sophomore in high school. I think I was a sophomore or junior, I can't quite remember, um, but I was quite active. I had always gotten really good grades. Uh, my, my siblings actually make fun of me. They, they talk about me being a nerd all the time. Although thankfully <laughs> it's really um, a desired quality in our family, we love it. Um, but if I completed a project as an assignment in his class. Uh, there wasn't a rubric for the class. And anyway, when I got the project back, uh, he gave me a C. And so I went to him after class and I asked this teacher um, who was new to our campus, but had worked uh, within that school district at, at a, another middle school or at a middle school, I was at in high school, at a middle school that uh, didn't have the greatest reputation for diversity and the way that they treated black and brown students that attended there. Uh, and so when I went to him, he, he just kind of like sloughed it off, you know, like, oh, well, you earned a C, you know, and there wasn't any feedback, there wasn't a rubric, I mean, there was nothing. And so, you know, I, I said, well, how can I earn a better grade? What can I do? And so then he just took the project, crossed out the C and gave me a B. But he didn't go back to his grade book. You know, he didn't make the changes. Uh, he still didn't give me any feedback. So I went home and I told my mom um, and my mom, 
thankfully it was a very present mom, really amazing. Um, she always, you know, backed our dreams and desires. And most importantly, she always believed us. Um, she definitely, you know, um, had the conversations with us around, you know, all those other things. But for the most part, she, she always believed us. And so she ended up setting up a, a meeting with our principal and this teacher. The teacher didn't attend the meeting. Uh, he, he skipped it, I think, on purpose. Um, and so the principal ended up having um, a conversation with me and my mom um, and this teacher. And after that, the teacher started using rubrics and started providing more feedback. And by that, I mean, he would give you like one to two pieces of feedback, but not in a really meaningful way. But that was really important and, and I think really pivotal in my experience um, because I it was the first time I had heard the word prejudice. So as soon as I was done telling my mom this story, she said, that teacher is prejudiced. And, you know, I was thinking, what does prejudice mean, you know, and so she went on to explain what it meant, you know, to, to be prejudiced and why this teacher would give me a C when I was a mostly A student with just, you know, like a few B's here and there. I had been taking AP classes, you know, and so, um, and because he didn't hesitate to, you know, to change the grade in the end, it, it really, I, you know, I think for me, it was really confusing you know, it was really upsetting. It wasn't an experience that I had had, or if I did have those experiences, I wasn't aware that it was because of my identity as a, as a black woman um, or as a black, a black girl at that time. And so it was, I think that was the first time, you know, that I really, really understood that. Um, and, and after that, unfortunately, I went on to be more aware um, of, of these, of these kinds of situations and, and scenarios. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, it, it kind of set me up for a better understanding when I went to college, when these things began to happen, as I, I went to college for my bachelor and master's degree um, outside of the Bay Area. So I, that's the first time that I could really remember as I was reflecting. What about you, Romy? Um, Oh, Karina, uh, what's something, that's something to follow for sure. <laughs> um, I think my experiences um, were a little slightly different because I went to a predominantly white um, school district growing up in Olathe, Kansas. Um, I honestly went to KU and I was like, oh my gosh, like there's diversity here. And like the diversity was like this much. <laughs> um, and you know, the diversity at KU, it, it does exist. Um, unfortunately, um, in relation to like what I thought or how I thought it would be present is not at all how it came to be. Um, you just have to, you have to, um, you have to look for it. Um, and for me, the greatest experience um, in my undergrad was again meeting um, Samantha and Teresa and being connected to the student equity and inclusion work group and I was struggling through my practicum actually as a senior and being like I don't have any of these um, resources or um, connections to help me through this practicum or why is this practicum so hard for me why is it so difficult um, because prior to being connected with the student equity and inclusion work group, I just thought, well, this is just my experience. It, maybe it's just supposed to be hard. Practicum is hard. Not everyone takes practicum as a senior. And I was like, started to doubt myself. I was like, do I want to go to speech pathology? Oh, maybe this isn't for me. Um, and then it was a matter of being woken up by the sound of um, what I now 
recognize what now we recognize as students of color um, being hidden curriculums. Um, I just found that hidden, hidden curriculums or the systems and institutions that um, professors and uh, faculty just kind of expect students to know even without being taught or guided to the answers or where to find certain things um, in our systems and academia, uh, that was the reason why, you know, I was struggling. And I attributed that to my race and I attributed that to my different intersections that I just had not previously um, recognized as factors to why my um, experience in academia was so, this took so much more work. It took so much more effort to do a lot of things. And it was once I was connected to the student equity and inclusion work group that I was like, ah, there's a name for that, hidden curriculums. And there's a reason why, you know, that's, that's because um, the experiences that I have are not necessarily equitable and that is a factor of my race and that is a factor of other intersections maybe my queerness maybe you know my there's just so many things that the list could go on honestly but um it was uh kind of through conversation with the student equity and inclusion work group and attending um this panel for students in the um liberal arts and sciences and health professions uh, back in like 2000, I want to say 2019, um, it was like a, just a panel discussion of uh, students of color in those professions. And they discussed things like the hidden curriculum, inequity, and how I was just sat there as an undergrad, um, as an undergraduate student in my last semester of uh, my program and thinking to myself, why can I relate to so, many, to so many of these experiences? And it's because this is not unique to being a student of color. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's, it's definitely, like Karina said, one of those things where once you catch wind of what is going on, what systems are, there, are at play, um, you really begin to uh, just analyze all and every interaction that you have as a student of color in these programs, um, because it is inequity and it is the reason why um, a lot of the students of color, a lot of BIPOC, um, gender diverse, queer students have to work a little bit more because there's just not the same systems that we uh, function under. So, um, how can others get involved to promote inclusivity? I think doing the work. And that sounds really cliche. I, I feel like we're hearing that um, a lot, a lot more often than we used to. Um, but I was thinking about my the experience that I just shared with you all and, and in listening to Romy's experience. Um, I think about, you know, after you, after a person who looks like me really understands the systems that are, play at, that are at play or begin to do the research and think about the systems that are at play, um, I think that it's, you know, this, you find this like strength, this resilience, this desire for perseverance, and it, and it, and it brings a certain kind of drive. But I think within this strength is 
often, unfortunately, having to do the work of, of helping people learn to do the work. And it's not really my job. You know, it's, it's not really our job to educate people about the systems that have been built to support them, but then to um, otherwise oppress me and people who look like me. And so, you know, I think, I, unfortunately, I've had experiences where in, in public spaces, like in, and in, in the classroom, even unfortunately, um, both at the high school and the college level, I've had experiences with people who have more power than I do in that moment, you know, educators, guest speakers, you name it. Um, and when I think about doing the work, I think about people who have you know, more power in, in the moment, stepping up on behalf of the people who who have, who have less power. And so sometimes what that looks like um, is, you know, if you see somebody being microaggressed, if you see active prejudice, um, sometimes racism, I understand that racism really, it can be very dangerous. So I'm not necessarily um, promoting calling people out or in when, when acts of racism are taking place because your life could be in danger, that's true. But in terms of like microaggressions, you know, when I think about microaggressions, I want people to understand that if they feel uncomfortable with something that is said to somebody, the person that it was directed to, then it is very likely, 99.9% .9 sure that the person who was targeted, because I've been that person, that the person who was targeted is also very uncomfortable. And I think sometimes um, people who want to be allies and people who want to be accomplices talk themselves out of uh, stepping up for people who really need them in the moment. You know, sometimes they talk about being nervous or scared, um, but the word scared has been so weaponized against people of color, you know, that it's really difficult at this point for me to agree or understand somebody else being scared when they weren't the person who was targeted. You know, it's really a call, you know, really to ask for people to uh, demonstrate more courage on behalf of people they say that they care about. It's really not enough to come to somebody once um, a situation is over and say, oh, I can't believe that happened. I'm so sorry. You know, coming to somebody um, behind closed doors to be an ally or an accomplice is not an ally or an accomplice, you know? And so when I really think about promoting inclusivity, I'm really thinking about um, creating this culture where people can call others in. And what that means is that people have to be willing to call other people in um, by asking questions um, and people have to be willing to be to be called in also by asking questions and otherwise facilitating a dialogue it really is the only way that people can grow and learn you know and you you have to choose to actively participate in growing and learning in this way every single day and it and it can't be one-sided so when I really think about um, promoting inclusivity I'm really thinking about promoting a culture, you know, within the classroom, within the work setting, within the home, if you're a person who lives with roommates, um, you know, to, to really um, be able to have conversations about like, if you feel microaggressed or if if people have friends over and, and their friends microaggress you or if your classmates are doing this or um, even if your educators are doing this you know it's really important that people feel like they can they can say what they what they need to say and you know one of the things right now is that with allies and accomplices a lot of the things that we've uh, or one of the things that we've heard over time is you know that they're not quite um 
you know, everybody is not not comfortable, you know, and being told that that what they did wasn't okay. But this really isn't about comfort. You know, a part of the inclusivity is, you know, we grow the most in, in times of discomfort, you know. And so I think for me, um, I think it's really, really kind of taking taking the time to be you know, to grow, to be better, doing the reading, not relying on um, Black people and other people of color to um, educate you so that you, so that you can advance. And I think too, not, not always attempting to show that you're doing the work. That's also really exhausting, you know, for Black people and other people of color, you know, to always um, have to engage or be engaged in these conversations around race when really you just want to drink coffee, you know, or like <laughs> really you just want to read a book, you know, and it's, it's, um, you know, I always think about when I was growing up, my mom used to say, you know, to always conduct yourself in a manner that when you're not there to speak for yourself, your character will speak for you, you know, and so I think, you know, I, I would really like people to think about when you walk out of the door, what do you want people to say about you? You know, do you want them to know that you are a person who were who was willing to learn and to grow? Um, you know, what what is it that you want people to say? And I think that um, if you're striving to show um, a, a true uh, light, positive character, you know, this is one of the ways to be able to do that. I resonate with a lot of what, uh, everything that Karina said, um, but I want to take it even a step further and say that, um, kind of talk off the point of um, not expecting Black folks, uh, Black students, to be the educators for their white peers and colleagues and educators um, because it really isn't our responsibility. However, a part of the Black student experience is um, being almost in a way expected to be the educator for these kind of microaggressions that Karina was talking about. Um, for me, I think about last semester in my first uh, practicum as a graduate student, um, I was placed in a Catholic parochial school environment for my clinical placements. And um, I expressed to um, some of my mentors in the program that I was a little distraught and nervous for the placement um, as a out and proud bisexual black man. Um, and, um, the conversation was uh, something that I don't even think my mentors knew how to navigate. I didn't really know how to navigate, but I had, I had to communicate that. I was like, I'm uncomfortable being in this placement. I am queer. Um, why did this even happen? And um, you know, the conversation led to them being kind of like, honestly, we're so sorry that, that this happened. We didn't even think about it. And I was like, for me, I was like, why didn't you think about it? Why are these conversations that are not already circulating and things that people are thinking about when we're talking about intersections and all these other factors that might contribute to the comfort level someone, a student has in a clinical placement. Um, so I there's even talk on um, from one of my mentors explaining to, to them why uh, it, was, it would not be appropriate uh, because a mentor suggested maybe talking to the principal in this Catholic parochial school uh, about like my concerns. And I had to explain to them like, well, that would be outing me and outing someone is, uh, does, does nothing but probably um, continue to 
<laughs> add some certain uh, some level of uh, worry and concern for that student, me, the students. Um, explain things like that, and really having to dive into these uncomfortable conversations where faculty basically says to you, "We don't know how this happened. We don't know." about the situation, we are learning through you, you're teaching us. Um, and that's the thing about being a student from multiple intersections is that um, a lot of the times what we are teaching our faculty are things that they can never teach us because we live these experiences and they do not. Um, and that's, the, that's just part of being a um, multi, multi-marginalized identity in um, the health professions, but just, just in general in higher education. Um, so I think when I think about equity and inclusion, it means faculty um, and students and fellow colleagues um, who are white have to do much more than just um, read books. Um, books are a great start to where um, you can get when you're looking for, you know, kind of concepts and um, further explanations on what equity is, but what you really need to be doing, what everyone needs to be doing is um, putting in, like Karina said, the work to make sure that these conversations are conversations that are already being had so that students of color or any other minoritized student is not the teacher or educator on these issues because this is not a new thing. None of the experiences that we have are a new thing. They are just being perpetuated over and over again because the systems in power, being our white academic structure, allows for these systems to continue to be um, just placated across every program where minority students um, are trying so hard to play in the same level, uh, in the same field as um, their white colleagues. And that is just not, um, that is the furthest way for us to get to an equitable place for all students is continually allowing there to be a separation between this is how white students will get ahead and this is how students of color will get ahead because that's kind of the level the level the playing field that we're on right now there's just always a separation oh well that's just how things are um it, i would accept that if i knew that there could be no change but there can be a change and who's going to allow that change to happen is going to be our allies, our white allies, our white educators, our white peers, our white colleagues, all of these kind of conversations that we're having, even in this podcast today, is because we're moving towards an era, hopefully, <laughs> where none of these issues need to be issues anymore, because we've called it out by name now. So what are we going to do next? The question is there, what are we going to do next? What are you willing to do as a colleague, as a peer, as a educator, as an ally to enhance and to really amplify the voices of students of color and minority students within all of these professions? Um, that is really where it needs to start. How, do you, how are you going to amplify these voices? What steps are you going to take to amplify these voices? And are you going to still stay idle 
in the privilege that you have or you're going to do something about it. Thanks for listening to the KUMC Cultivate podcast. We strive to build awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion activities and issues within our community. And we invite you to collaborate with us by answering the question, where do we go from here?